In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps a $5 minimum balance required. This is Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Talk About It with Janelle King, the podcast. And I am really excited about this episode because we're going to talk about Vivek Ramaswamy, who is a 2024 presidential candidate, and he is... Um, new to the scene, so to speak. He's kind of been around. I've heard him speak uh, before and I've heard him moderate before. Um, I really do like some of the things that he says. I have some other critiques, but we'll get into that. But he did a wonderful interview with Candace Owens and I have to give her so much props on asking all the right questions. I felt like there was no stone that was left unturned. And I think that's what we need going into 2024. I was excited to see that we have uh, people who are willing to ask the tough questions and not run away from things. Um, so to be clear, this interview was done on Candace Owens podcast and um, I will put the link to the entire interview in my social media. She is with the Daily Wire. I really like the Daily Wire. Um, but I really want to make sure y'all understand that this is this was her interview and I most certainly will share the final link. So let's jump into it. So the first clip or audio that you're going to hear is Vivek sharing who he is his professional um, background and just a little bit about him. And that's, that is what I want to know. I think a lot of us are asking, where do you come from? So let's, let's listen in. Yeah, sure thing. Yes. I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm talking to you from my home base in Columbus today, which is where our family lives. But my parents were immigrants from India. They came over in the late 1970s and early 1980s, my dad and my mom. Uh, they didn't have a lot of money. We didn't grow up particularly rich, but it was a you know education-focused family, as you might expect of first-generation Indian immigrants. And you know, ended up growing up in a uh, pretty poor public school, actually, through about eighth grade. But then they actually ended up deciding to switch me to a private school so that we could actually focus on academics. So I went to St. X High School in Cincinnati. I still am actually on the board of that high school to this day, and that was a big part of where actually my moral education, I would say, began and shaped a lot of my views on the educational system. But anyway, St. X in Cincinnati had a big impact on my upbringing. And then I ended up going to Harvard for college, thought I was going to be a scientist. I was this nerdy guy in the lab for most of college. So that was me. Uh, But when I graduated, I decided that, I don't know, the time horizon of just spending around, you know, working on 10-year projects in a lab was a little bit not my speed. And so I ended up getting into the world of biotech investing in New York City. I joined this hedge fund in the fall of 2007, right before the 08 financial crisis. That actually shaped a lot of my views on capitalism to this day. It was a heck of an experience in a good way from a learning perspective as a 22-year-old guy. I did that for seven years. I had this itch about three years in. I I had been so science-centric that I decided that I wanted to you know, study law and political philosophy. I had never really done that. So I went, I spent three years in law school at Yale from 
2010 to 2013. They let me keep my job as an investor. And so those ended up being three productive years. Met my wife. She was my next door neighbor. She was in med school at the time. Anyway, long story short is after all of that happened, I founded a biotech company. I decided I was sick of the pharma industry. It's actually a it's actually a really deeply broken industry. We could have a whole hour about that. It's an industry that behaves like the government because it's a monopoly industry. It's regulated by the FDA. I wasn't thinking about this from a governmental perspective at the time, but the good news is as an entrepreneur, that creates a lot of opportunity when you have an industry that behaves like a government. And so anyway, I started a biotech company that was designed to challenge big pharma and basically focus on developing these drugs that for bureaucratic reasons, they just decided weren't the drugs they actually wanted to develop. And it ended up being the backbone of building a multi-billion dollar company that I built as CEO for seven years. Five medicines I worked on are approved drugs for patients today. The one I'm personally most proud of is a drug for prostate cancer that I can definitely say would not exist if it weren't for you know, the steps that I took in my years as CEO. But I stepped down from my job as a CEO. I think you and I talked about this on your documentary for a very different reason. It was in the wake of the George Floyd death and the Black Lives Matter protests across this country that there was a demand for me to make a statement as the CEO of a multi-billion dollar biotech company in favor of Black Lives Matter. I refused to do it. And that set up a six-month, you know, I would say journey is what I'll call it. I described it in Woke Inc., but a six-month journey that resulted in advisors to my company stepping down, very prominent people. And I decided that, look, nobody's forcing me to step down. It's my company. I was the founder. I was the CEO. So I didn't have a boss per se. But it was clear that if I was going to continue speaking my mind as a citizen, not using the company to do it, but just staying honest to my true beliefs, that was going to have a negative impact on my company. And I decided to, you know what, speak freely as a citizen rather than through the filter of corporate self-interest. It's one of the best decisions I've made. I've been liberated ever since then. And I've been speaking freely across the country. I wrote three books. Two of them are out. Third one's coming out this year. Been to a majority of states across this country speaking about the perils of the woke religion, speaking about the perils of so-called stakeholder capitalism, using companies to advance political values. I've had a front row seat to seeing the toxic impact of that, both on capitalism and, you know, I would just say on our, on our society more broadly. But, you know, I, 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 the, the last piece of this, Candace, that led me to actually take the step of running for president is even though I was trying to solve these problems through the market, I actually ended up starting another company called Strive to compete with BlackRock and actually use shareholder power to tell companies to go back to focusing on their products and services for profit instead of pushing these ESG values, these environmental and social agendas. And Strive's been incredibly successful in a short amount of time too. As, as much as I was focused on the top-down problem, you know, the state working with private companies to get their agendas done through the back door that they couldn't get done through the front door, as much as all of that was important, wrote books about it, addressed market solutions, if I was being really honest about it, that trick only works if you have a culture, a populace in this country that's willing to buy up what they're selling. And I wasn't going to solve that through writing books or just the market alone or pointing out the problem. And that's when, you know, my wife and I, we had a really deep discussion about this not that long ago, around Christmas break at the end of last year, saying that, you know what, I think that we're going to have to have a national cultural revival to actually address that bottom up problem. And that's what led me to this most recent step of the journey. And running for president. And the goal wasn't just to run for the sake of running. I think the way we drive that cultural change is actually 
in the way that Reagan drove a national revival in 1980 by actually succeeding and governing with a cultural vision for national identity in America that I think we're missing. And, you know, that's what brought me to the doorstep of this presidential journey. Okay, so after hearing that audio, I hear my thoughts, right? So I, I, I appreciated the fact that he provided us with more details regarding his background. I feel like I have more of a clear picture of what he's done. I don't feel like he is exaggerating. I don't feel like he is inflating his background, which so many candidates do. I just, I think he really is a successful young man. Um, he became successful at a young age, but it, I do think it has a lot to do with his parents and the culture. You know, Thomas Sowell talks about how cultural priorities is one of the uh, things that separates us or creates um, uh, disparities, right? Is that if you prioritize sports over education, then, you know, you might have some challenges. But he made it clear that his parents supported education and they prioritized that. So it makes sense as to why he was so successful at a young age. Now, where I wasn't too clear on was his motives for running. Um, I don't think he has a, a bad motive. I don't think he's, he's, he's being, you know, doing anything that is shady or anything like that. But he stated that he had another book coming out. He also stated that he needed a bigger platform in so many words. So I was wondering if this was more of a, a launching pad for a future run. Um, I, it almost sounds like he knows that he may not win this and he may not come out of a primary, but he understands that there's another win to this. And so I'm really interested in hearing what his motive is overall. But I just don't want to feel like he is doing this to build up um, support for his books or, you know, I just, I'm really skeptical about that. Um, he stated that winning wasn't that important in so many words. And I don't know, you know, but at the same time, Trump was counted out early too. So I'm not, I, I just don't want him to count himself out too early. Um, and this goes for, any of the candidates, because I do believe that at the end of the day, getting elected comes down to the right message and the right financial support. And I don't think he has an issue with any of those. Um, but obviously he has a lot of other competitors that have the right message or a good message at that and uh, financial support as well. So I kind of, I want him to kind of hone in on his why and in a way where it doesn't seem as self-servant, but it se seems like he really understands that this is um, an outward job and not an inward focused job. Okay. So the next clip that you're going to hear is him talking about the Department of Education. Um, you know, I think the Department of Education needs to go. I hate it. <laughs> I think it's a waste of money. Um, I think that we have enough oversight when it comes to education in each state with their state boards. And then we have county boards of education as well. So, you know, I definitely think that, uh, or school boards. So I definitely think that, you know, we don't need the, the, the actual board of education federally, but that's just my thoughts. Let's listen to hear what Vivek had to say. So I'm glad you brought up the Department of Education, Candace, because that tells me you get something that most people don't get in this country, which is that that's actually the invisible hand, or should we call it the invisible fist, behind the rise of the critical race theory movement in local schools across the country. I applaud parents who have shown up at school board meetings to replace bad school board members. That's an important step forward. 
But here's the invisible part is many of those school boards are actually responding to the economic incentives created by the U.S. Department of Education. So the U.S. Department of Education spends about 80 plus billion. I think it's about 83 to 85 billion dollars per year in the form of grants, in the form of subsidies. But there are strings attached. So if you're a local school, you get that if and only if you adopt certain agendas espoused by the U.S. Department of Education. What does that include? It includes the same kind of indoctrination that you see through other parts of our U.S. government, like the U.S. military, et cetera. Same thing with respect to the U.S. Department of Education, critical race theory, gender ideology. These are actually attached as strings to getting money. So people respond economically to incentives because the school board members are saying, well, if we're going to get that kind of money and that kind of financial aid, well, then this is just a cost of doing business. Now, some of this is bottom up too, but people forget the top down part. Now, my view as a leader here is I bring up, I've built businesses. Yes, I've been a constitutional scholar, Yale law educated, all that, but I actually bring a private sector perspective to interpreting article two of the constitution, which says that if you're the chief executive, if you're the president of the United States and you can't fire somebody who works for you, or for that matter, tens of thousands of people who work for you, that means that they don't work for you. It means that you work for them because you're accountable for what they do without having any authority to change it. And that's not what Article 2 of the Constitution says. So I take a strong view of executive authority when it comes to downsizing, that these civil service protections, these are congressional statutes from a long time ago that sort of said, you, your civil service, if you're a civil servant, you can't be fired. I think those are unconstitutional if that's actually what a president of the United States believes is the right way to affect the laws of the country. So I'm, again, the first person here to say that I will shut down the U.S. Department of Education. It's not an agency that lends itself to reform. You have tens of thousands of people showing up to work, carrying out a mandate they should have never had in the first place. You can't reform that. I love Betsy DeVos. I think that you know President Trump did a great job putting her in charge of the Department of Education. But when an agency fundamentally should not have existed in the first place, you're never going to solve the cancer that it creates on our national soul by just incrementally tinkering around the edges or even putting the right figurehead on top. You have to shut the thing down. Mm -hmm. And so actually, I said this, I think I said this on day one of launching the campaign. I'm going to shut down administrative agencies. I take a strong view of Article Two of the Constitution. I think the people who we elect to run the government, such as the president of the United States, should be the ones who actually run the government, not a permanent managerial bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know what? Once we shut down the Department of Education, by the way, take that $80 billion. You, you see school choice is underfunded in certain parts of the country. Rain that money from on high. That makes that problem look small by comparison, and you'll still have a lot of money to spare, that $80 billion. It's about a $1.6 billion per state in this union. And then you solve some of the other problems too, Candace, because turns out, here's a general principle, is if you have an agency or a bureaucracy that's cancerous in one thing, like, for example, the critical race and gender ideology movement in our schools, and it is, turns out it's probably causing other problems too. And it turns out with the Department of Education, they absolutely are. You wonder why if you, I mean, most people watching this, right, pick up the phone, try to call a plumber or a welder or a carpenter. Turns out that's kind of hard to find in America, and that's actually one of the drivers of inflation. Well, why is that? One of the reasons is, you guessed it, the Department of Education will subsidize a four-year gender studies major in California, but without any similar kind of program for two-year study programs for welders or carpenters or mechanics or plumbers or builders. 
So you get what you pay for, right? You're paying for the one thing. Guess what you got? You got a bunch of four-year gender studies majors from California who don't really know how to be useful members of the workforce, but you have a workforce shortage because we subsidize the system. So you subsidize CRT, you get CRT. You subsidize one form of education over another, you get an imbalance in your labor force. But as a president, and this is where like a big part of what I, the way I look at this is, I don't criticize what President Trump did. I'm just taking what he began in this country to the next level without apology, without fear of being called racist or a Christian nationalist or a white nationalist or whatever. That that would be a, a tough sell, I think. But for They're whatever do it reason, anyways. They do it anyways. Do it anyway. I, don't, I don't really <laughs> care. You, you probably know better than I do. But, you know, I mean, you've had more experience in this public light than I have. But I'm ready for that. I don't care. I'm 37 years old. I'm a millennial. There's a lot of things that are just different. And also, I just don't. I could care less at the end of the day. I'm not even in this to, I would rather speak truth at every step of the way and lose this election badly than to somehow find a snakes and ladder. And I see others in this race who are much more politically calculating savvy types that are thinking about the way they're supposed to play a given issue. I'm not cut from that cloth. I'm not playing that game of snakes and ladders. We're just going to speak truth at every step of the way. Our bet is that's a successful electoral strategy. We'll find out. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I think it will be. But even if it's not, I think really winning is actually about speaking truth and being willing to act on those convictions. And if I do win this thing, we're going to take what President Trump set into motion, but really take that to the next level, not just tinkering around the edges, not just exposing the problem of this permanent administrative state, as he did in many cases, right? He exposed the swamp. He exposed the deep state. If you actually want to do something about it, you have to be willing to gut the thing, take a sledgehammer to it and shut it down. And the Department of Education is a perfect example of even these local uprisings we're seeing, as good as those are, they're not going to go the distance as long as you have an economic incentive structure created by the federal government. That's why I think the presidency is such a useful position to drive change, because nothing I told you I'm going to do from affirmative action to Department of Education so far is something I'm either going to ask Congress for permission on or for forgiveness on, because Article 2 of the Constitution gives the president of the United States the power to actually do it. Okay, so as I stated before, I totally agree with Vivek when it comes to getting rid of the, the Board of Education. I think it's unconstitutional. I think it's a waste of money. Um, but, you know, I have a friend who I call my favorite historian. His name is John Marsh. And he, um, we recorded a couple of episodes, so you'll be hearing from him soon. But... He said something that will forever stick with me. He said that, you know, we were talking about the State of the Union and the state, uh, yeah, the State of the Union and just the presidential address and all that. And he said, I really want people to stop using I. Like, you're not doing anything. You won't be doing anything. And he says like a red flag to him when he hears all of these, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Because it it, it kind of shows that you don't understand the process. I think I would like to hear more of we. I'm hoping that we would be able to do this. I'm hoping that my cabinet would be able to do this with me. We have a plan for this because no president does anything by themselves. And even when I hear President Trump continue to say, I, 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 I'm like, you didn't do it by yourself. And I I think it's important that we don't continue to uh, think that that's okay. We, We need to hear more we. So that's an easy fix. I definitely want to hear Vivek kind of get off of what I plan to do and get off, get on. This is what I think we need to do um, should I be elected. So I love that he is a supporter of trade 
education. Um, I absolutely think that, you know, there should be a um, opportunity for uh, people to focus in on skills as a construction company owner and just being in the construction world, being around it because of my husband. I know that labor is a challenging position. I mean, it's challenging, right? It's hard to find good people that know how to do some of the things you need, like electrician, plumbing, you know, HVAC. These skills are very lucrative and people can make a lot of money coming out of uh, training, which is not, doesn't take four years to, to, to educate someone. So I definitely think that we do need to put a lot of energy into trade. I like that he's very knowledgeable about that process. Um, and I also think that I found it interesting that it seems like everything he said and is saying sounds very MAGA to me. Um, it sounds like people who are extremely strong Trump supporters. I think I've heard closing down departments from almost every Trump supporter I know because we want to reduce spending. And to be clear, you know, shrinking government is what we're supposed to be doing as Republicans, as conservatives, as constitutionalists. We're supposed to be making sure that we don't grow and expand government and give government more power but that we are shrinking it so that the power is in the hands of the people. Um, I personally, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, please someone let me know, but I haven't heard Trump talk a lot about shutting down departments. I don't know if he, that's even part of his plan. Um, it may be a matter, it may be a matter of want, or it may be a matter of can't, you know, that's yet to, yet to be seen. And maybe he tried and just, it, it can't be done because you have to, you know, go through this process that we don't know about. And, but I find it hard to believe that there's not some way that we can do it. So I'm interested to see if there are going to be people who are going to jump ship from Trump to Vivek based on these very strong policy stances. I didn't uh, take the audio, clip the audio of him talking about affirmative action, but that's another thing that he wants to get rid of, which I agree. I, I think it you know, hurts our communities. I think it is um, something that did not work, especially when it comes to black men. I feel like women took advantage of it more than men, but that's a whole other conversation. So I, I feel like, but his stances to me are very, very Trump supporter. I can't say they're Trump stances, but from the Trump supporters I know seems to totally agree. So I'm wondering, I would love to know, like, will you jump ship if you heard those strong stances coming from another candidate or would you stick with Trump? And personally, I feel like this is the most important litmus test of our party, not the one that's like, are you supporting Trump or not? I think this is the most important litmus test in our party because of the fact that it basically says you have to decide, am I supporting the person or am I supporting the positions and the policies? Because supporting Trump because he's Trump is one thing. Supporting Trump because you agree with his policy positions is another thing. So I don't know. I think this is going to be a really, really good discussion. Discussion. Now, going to the third clip, <laughs> um, I this clip is about Trump. You know, so Candace asked another great question. You know, basically, what do you think about Trump? So let's hear what Vivek thinks. 
So I think you get to be an outsider once. And so I respect the heck out of what he did in 2015 and 2016. Mm. He came in as an outsider and had no inhibition for what you, the inhibitions you have if you grew up within that system. Okay. So I can't tell you what my situation will be after one or two terms in office, but I will tell you, I don't have any of those inhibitions today. The swamp has not drained me yet. Okay. And so I think you get that fresh energy as an outsider once. And I think that President Trump laid a foundation. Somebody had to do it. So I can't believe in four years that you could have at once both exposed the problem and solved it. But exposing the problem, it wears on you. I mean, I, I, I'm, President Trump is a friend. I, I, as I understand, you guys know each other. You're friendly as well. Is he the same person today that he was even back in 2015? Of course not. These experiences change you. Will I be the same person four or eight years after serving that I am today? No, but I'm fresh and ready to go. And I have actually seen a lot of the areas where he could have gone further but didn't. I'm not saying I would have done better in 2016 either. But against the backdrop of learning from that foundation and having fresh legs to and, and, and the lack of inhibition to actually address the problems, there's a reason why I'm the only candidate willing to talk about ending affirmative action. I'm the only candidate willing to talk about abandoning the climate cult. I mean, these are two of my top priorities. These are things a president of the United States can do. Shutting down the Department of Education. A chief executive can actually do this. I'm not blaming President Trump for not doing it, but if he was going to do it, it would have happened already, right? We still have a U.S. Department of Education. He put the best person he could have in charge of it. This is about taking that to the next level. And, and so my, my best case scenario here, Candace, would be I would love to have him as an advisor, okay? I don't want to do this alone. We want to do this for the country. It's not even about me, right? So if he has experiences of how he may have run into that deep state, run into that permanent state, and run into obstacles, I want to know about them. And I don't want to just know about them in advance. I want to know about them every day in real time. I think he could make for a legendary presidential advisor because unlike the other advisors who themselves are creatures of the so-called swamp itself, you want somebody who actually had the experience of trying, having had some successes, and then haven't had some failures along the way. The next time you have an Anthony Fauci who, or Merrick Garland or a James Comey or whoever who resists their legally ordained scope, you got to do what the Constitution empowers you to do. You fire them. You fire the managerial industrial complex around them, the legions of people under them. Now, I want to know, did that occur to President Trump? What obstacles did he run into? Great. Arm me with that. But I've got fresh legs. I've got no inhibitions. I don't care if somebody's going to think you're going to have a tough time calling me a racist or a white nationalist or whatever, but even, I'm sure that will come too. But I'm unshackled, and you can already see that based on the fact that I'm already taking on issues that even President Trump would have had some difficulty, did have some difficulty taking on. I pressed his policy people on why they didn't touch the affirmative action issue. They said it was not a political hill they wanted to die on. That's an exact quote. Well, you know what? You, you could drag my dead body out of the White House before I finish taking on that, before I'm abandoned taking on that issue. And I think that we need, you know what, we need to be the party, the GOP, that nominates the outsider. I think that should be the tradition. Let the Democrats be the party of the professional politician. And this is why it really gets under my skin when we see the professional politician, the donor class favorites rising up the ranks of our party now, which is where my bigger beef is here now with President Trump. But I think we should be the party for the presidency, not for the Senate, not for Congress, not even for governors. There, you know, we could debate that on governors. But for the presidency, we need somebody who comes in as an outsider and starts the cycle of the Phoenix again. Sometimes you got to burn it down a little bit to be able to have something new that actually rises from the fertile ashes. That's going to be a big part of my approach to governing, starting with that administrative state. 
And he's so, the establishment favorite. Um, so look, I want to say that I respect a lot of the things he's done in Florida. I really do. I'm grateful that he's taken a lot of the principles that I've written about in Woking. So what I loved about his response is that I did feel like it was an honest answer. I felt like he answered the question. It wasn't a, a spin or a beat around the bush. And I appreciated that. When he said you can only be an outsider once, I actually like that. I actually agree because once you learn the secrets of the country, you're no longer an outsider. You can't be. It's impossible to be that. And so I do agree that once you're a politician, you are no longer an outsider. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not one of those people that hate politicians. We need politicians. Politicians are necessary. I don't like it when you become a power-hungry politician who only cares about themselves and forget that you are working for us and we're not working for you. So I don't like that part, but I do understand where he's coming from. You know, you can't claim to be an outsider when you have like, you've held the White House, right? So I don't, and I'm not saying that's what Trump's doing right now, but I do like that comment. Um, you know, they're just things that you know and decisions that you that has been made that, you know, many of them we may not ever know about. So I just, I can't get with the whole outsider thing. And we all know the saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I do feel like we are dealing with a kingmaker king situation with Trump. And, um, but I'm interest, interested to see how this plays out over the course of the campaign season, because when he was on Sean Hannity's show not too long ago, he did an interview and I heard him kind of back away from certain things that I think he put it probably would have hit head on prior to, uh, you know, the, the, the climate changing a little bit around him. So I'm inter- interested to see what, what, what that's going to look like in the coming months. Okay. The last audio clip is you're going to hear Vivek's perspective on DeSantis. So. Let's listen in. So, look, I want to say that I respect a lot of the things he's done in Florida. I really do. I'm grateful that he's taken a lot of the principles that I've written about in Woke Inc. and elsewhere and and tried his best to translate that into action with, I think, some real successes under his belt in Florida. But I think if we're talking about somebody who's going to be representing America across the table of Xi Jinping, you need somebody who has a spine of steel. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. Ron DeSantis is not that person. He just isn't. I think that we see it over the course of the last couple of weeks, the Silicon Valley bailout, and it was a bailout of Silicon Valley itself. I wrote in the op-ed, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on like rush timeline to get it out there. We did get it out there shortly before Janet Yellen and the U.S. government made the disastrous decision. I think it was disastrous. I don't know what your opinion is on this, but Mm -hmm. for reasons I've written about, it it was a disastrous bailout. Mm -hmm. I tried to change the outcome. Okay, I wanted to speak out quickly, not run it through my political consultants or anything else. I care about the country. It's not even about my candidacy. I don't, I can tell you this firsthand experience, by the way, I lost countless big time donors over that position. They were calling me all that weekend saying, you know, we like you. We like, we want to support you. This is crazy. You can't actually support this. These are America's greatest innovators. How could you turn against us? You should know better. There's going to be a bank run on Monday unless we do this, trying every argument against the wall. I was being manipulated, right? This is part of an influence operation. I reject that. Okay, so I was willing to do that make a sacrifice for the donor class or whatever. The guy who, in the name of governing Florida, will run in front of a camera to take on a national issue on a given day when it's easy with the conservative base, right? The anti-woke stuff, 
I mean, by now, Candace, let's just be honest. It's really easy. It wasn't easy when I started talking about this stuff. It wasn't easy when you started talking about this stuff. But now that's candy. That's easy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We don't need somebody who just chases candy or, or, you know, even the response to Trump and the potential indictment last weekend. Again, why was I so particular about speaking out instantly? I didn't ask my political consultants. I woke up on Saturday morning. I thought this was wrong. Why did I speak up about it? It's because those of us, myself included, who are running against President Trump have the most credibility, the strongest standing to actually condemn the politicized prosecution of our opponent. It would be convenient if President Trump were the top polar right now. We're out of the race. I'm sure it would be convenient for Ron DeSantis. It would be more convenient for people like me. That's what gives us credibility, though, to call out and hopefully help shape the right outcome for the country. And you know, I pray for the country now that this guy comes to his senses. We'll see that's pending as we speak, that Alvin Bragg potentially backs off of this politicized persecution through prosecution. Where was Ron DeSantis? Same place he was with respect to the Silicon Valley bailout. Silent. Until a couple days later, when, what do you see, a poll tested? Okay, I know condemning woke is good for my base. Now let me just say Soros as many times as I can and hopefully throw that candy at the base without actually addressing the issue head on. It's a politicized prosecution. It's wrong. Yes, it would be convenient if Donald Trump were out of the race politically, but that doesn't matter. This isn't about politics. It's about principle and the country. And to join me in condemning and calling as a fellow American on a misguided district attorney to say, are you actually doing the right thing for the justice system or the country? And if you're not, drop this. I didn't really like his response with DeSantis as much as I did with Trump because um, I'm not, I'm not, like I said, this is not an endorsement or support of anybody, but I will say this. Mentioning your book as if DeSantis is kind of on this whole book review tour of yours is a little bit self-focused. I, I feel like, I don't know, for me, it it kind of makes me cringe a little bit when I hear people slip in their, their two cents into things where it seems like they are focusing back, putting the focus back on them rather than just continuing to answer the question. That's a little bit cringy for me, um, but we all do it. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, but that was a little bit cringy for me. Now, I don't like the the attack on the donor class and I'm putting up quotation marks because the donor class or the donor group of people are still American citizens. Just because you have the resources to make larger donations and you're willing to do that. I mean, to me, that doesn't mean that you are a part of some wicked class automatically. Do I think there are people who use their money to influence incorrectly and they do it on purpose incorrectly? Absolutely. But again, that's human nature. You have to remember, you don't get to write off political donations. So when people are throwing $50,000, $100,000 in, that's money you are throwing away, hoping it materializes into um, a support and for a candidate that wins so that that per candidate can go on and do what they say they're going to do. But, you know, I don't want to villainize the donor class because you got to have donors. I mean, you, you've got to. So, um, so that was just one thing. Um, you know, but my issue today when it comes to donors is that, you know, back in the day, there used to be people who understood kingmaking. And it wasn't because they just wanted to have a whole bunch of power. And now I know that, I, again, I know those people exist, but I also know people who felt like they would meet with someone, they would hear them out, 
They would go by their vibe, their message, what they're getting, and then they would throw their money behind a candidate because they felt like that candidate was saying what was needed to be said and that that candidate would actually do what they say they're going to do. Not because, um, you know, Trump told them to, not because they're waiting to see what the polls say. They were like, we have the resources to make this person relevant, even if they're not relevant, simply because they're saying the right things. I don't have a problem with that. I think we need more of that um, rather than donors who simply cut checks because they're reading the tea leaves or because, you know, Trump said it or DeSantis said it or, you know, I, I, I don't really have I, I don't like that because at that point now I feel like you're just hedging a bet. You know, you're not necessarily influencing anything. So I do want to see our donors um, participate with more of the power in the hands of them as citizens and not as, you know, an arm, a financial arm of a particular person or organization and so forth. So to close this out, my here's my take on Vivek. Um, I think he is 100% necessary for this conversation. I am so excited that he's in the race. I don't know if I'll be supporting him or not, but I will say this. Having him on that debate stage will hold everyone's feet to the fire. This guy does not come off like he is concerned, afraid, or, you know, just waiting to see what happens. He doesn't come off as someone who's going to manipulate and be conniving. He doesn't come off as someone who wants to win by any means necessary. All of those things, to me, puts him in a position where if he does this right, he may be the nominee because as more and more people hear from him, um, I can see him pulling from some of Trump's base and I can see him pulling a little bit from DeSantis base. He's a millennial. He's young. He has a lot of years ahead of him. So it's not a desperate run for him. So I think if anything else, if he doesn't do anything else, I believe that he is going to be responsible for holding people accountable and on the debate stage and holding people accountable in many of the discussions. I am excited about 2024. We haven't had everyone jump in yet. I'm hearing rumblings about Tim Scott. I'm hearing obviously rumblings about DeSantis. Um, You know, I mean, we got Mike Pompeo. We've kind of heard about Vice President Pence. So I don't know. I'm excited to to see what comes out of this 2024, you know, uh, season, election season. So there you have it. That's my take. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, Again, I just wanted to you know, share a little bit of this interview because I really found it to be fascinating. I'm going to try to find an interview about Nikki Haley so that I can do the same for her. And I want to do it with Trump as well. So I'm going to find the Hannity interview and maybe I can find it where I can share it. Um, But I want to kind of break down each person's full interview But I wish Candace Owens can interview all of them because she asked all the right questions. So thank you, Candace, for doing that. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. I have a huge announcement coming up in just a little bit. So please make sure you follow me on social media at I am dash underscore. I'm sorry. I am underscore Janelle K. And um, and that's my personal But to find out more about this podcast, please go to J King 
podcast and that's on Instagram and I am so 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 excited to hear from you all right bye-bye Thank you for listening to Let's Talk About It with Janelle King. Remember to like, share, and follow this podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes have been uploaded. And if you heard something that you like, please give it five stars. And guess what? I need your feedback. Or if you just have a topic that you want to hear or some ideas and ways that I can help to make this podcast more enjoyable for you, please shoot me an email. It goes directly to me at I am period Janelle King at gmail.com. That's king at gmail.com. And like I always say, remember, disagreement is democracy. Thank you for listening. In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps $5 minimum balance required. Support for Extra 1063 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3 1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season.